For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, we are presently in a series looking at James. We actually started the series in July of 2017, so it's been a while. Um, we come down to the last two messages in the letter, and I'm kind of sad about that in one way, because for me as a preacher, I, I really love the books that we're in. I love the one I'm with. And so right now, I feel like I know James really well, and it's always sad when you turn the page, because kind of missed the person I was with. Um, but we come down to the last two messages from James and what a letter it is, isn't it? What wonderful and provoking and encouraging things he has to tell us. And today is no exception. We're going to read from verses 12 through to 18. This is the word of the Lord. But above all, my brothers... Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is he cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for James. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for his words. Lord, how wonderful it is to consider that each of these words has ultimately been breathed out by you and then merely written by the hand of James. Lord, you tell us then, as John Calvin tells us, to offer to Scripture the same reverence that we offer to you. And so, Lord, that's what we do again today. We sit under your voice. We sit under your word, under your teaching. Lord, just like Thomas, we've declared that you are my Lord and my God. So, Lord, teach us this morning. We are all your students. And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it was a number of years ago now that our three older kids changed schools. They all started going to Pacific Hills Christian School. And Lydia's first teacher, I think it was her first teacher or her second, was a man by the name of John O. Miller. And we really liked John O'Miller. He went on to actually go to Europe and start to um, proclaim Christ somewhere in Europe. I remember it well in, in his leaving. But we really loved him as a teacher. The very first time I met him and Lydia met him, we noticed straight away that he has hair just like Lydia's. It was blonde, it was big, it was everywhere. And straight away Lydia knew, I'm going to get on with this guy. I'm going to really like this guy. And that's exactly how it played out. They really did get on really well as, as teacher and student. And the thing that I loved about Jono is he really loves the Lord, really loves Jesus, and really loves the local church. And he was passionate about ensuring that the kids not only get a good education, but they would grow up and be influenced by Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And we loved that. 
And one of the things I remember about him is whenever he would write to us, to Emma and I, or to the class, or to the class parents, he would say what he needs to say, and right at the end of each and every email, he would simply say this, keep looking up. And then he would sign his name. And I noticed in every email, that's the way he finished, keep looking up, John O'Miller. And so I asked him, like, where does that come from? Because I really like it as a catchphrase, but where does it come from? And he said, actually, it was my grandmother. And my grandmother died in 2004, and yet she was a wonderful lady. Whenever I encountered my grandmother, she would always encourage me to keep looking up, to ensure that if the times are going well, you return to the Lord and give thanks to him, because it's all for his glory. And if times are tough, then you keep looking up. You run to him, because in him you'll have the fulfillment of everything you've been looking for. And so in each and every letter she would write me and others, she would always say, keep looking up at the end. And so when she died, I thought I'd do the same thing. To remind people that it's either all by grace that you have what you receive, or you're in need of grace, any which way you need to keep looking up. Well, as I've read this letter, and as the letter is now coming to the end through the hand of James, I believe James is doing exactly the same thing at the end of this letter. Because in three words, what he is saying in these verses as he draws it to a close is simply this. Keep looking up. Keep looking up. That's his exhortation in these final moments. He wants us to keep looking up. That's what he wants to exhort the early readers to do. That's what he wants to exhort us to do, to keep looking up and ensure then that whether we're going through good times in our lives or indeed difficult times in our lives, the answer and remedy to all things will be that we will keep looking up. We will keep running to the Lord in whom is all things. See, these early readers, these original readers, the recipients of this letter, as James knows, they are experiencing some very significant suffering. They're undergoing intense hardship and poverty and persecution. And it's all coming out, as we know, by the rich and, w- and wicked landowners. You see, these are all part of the dispersion. These are all people that used to be in Jerusalem, but since the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that's happening there, they've been dispersed from Jerusalem. And yet, having been dispersed, for many of them, they're on the receiving end of abuse and oppression and difficulty from the rich and wicked landowners. Some, as James tells us in chapter 5, verse 6, have even been killed at their hands. This is a suffering church. These are suffering people. And James dearly loves them. That's why he writes to them. When they were in Jerusalem, he he used to be their pastor. And so he knew them all by name. And he dearly loves them. And although James was left behind in Jerusalem, he knew that they all fled. And so now he writes to them to try and care for them, to try and love on them to try and bring them hope, to try and bring God's word to bear on their lives. He is their pastor, and although they are dispersed from him, he deeply cares for them. And so he writes a letter to them to seek to give them a divine perspective on trials and sufferings. You will notice that that has been a theme running through the entire letter. He, he wants to care for them and help them to understand your sufferings are not a waste. God's going to use them for his glory and your good. If you embrace them, that you will mature in Christ. Don't let your suffering be wasted. And it's a refrain he talks about in time and time again as he seeks to give them perspective on what is happening. That's why in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, 
He once again exhorts them to have patience in suffering. And so he tells them, guys, listen, I know you're struggling. I know this is hard. But be aware that Jesus is already at the door. He's going to come back as the judge of all. The rich landowners that you're struggling with, Jesus will return and they will have their comeuppance on that day. You do not need to deal with this. He is the righteous judge of all. But more than that, even your suffering is light and momentary in comparison. Because Jesus is at the door and he's coming back to you. He's going to rescue you. He's going to call you home. Heaven is your home. This isn't your home. And so he exhorts them to stand firm in their suffering, to not be wavering, but to stand firm. Well, in verse 12, then, he gives them one final exhortation and warning relating to their speech. And when you stop and think about it, it is speech that relates and has come from their suffering. The heat is their suffering, and their speech is the fruit, but he wants to address that. And so in verse 12, he says, But above all, my brothers... Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, Douglas Moore in his wonderful commentary says this to help us understand what it means by a swear or an oath. He says, when James says, do not swear, it is not coarse or vulgar speech that he prohibits, but invoking God's name to guarantee the reliability of what a person says. And so it is. These guys aren't swearing. What they're doing is they are invoking the name of the Lord to guarantee or to give some type of guarantee to what they are saying. And James is saying, guys, for you, this is not a good thing. You see, what they're doing... Imagine, in their poverty and in their difficulty, if they are going to rich people and saying, listen, I need to borrow money, and I swear by God's name that I will give you it back. Or I need a job, and I swear by God's name I will be a really good worker. They're doing this all the time. It's the way they're starting to live. But the truth is, even though they're swearing under heaven and earth and often unto the Lord, they're not doing what they've sworn to do. They're borrowing money, but even in the borrowing of money, they don't know if they're going to be able to repay it or not. It would be a miracle for them to repay it, but they're going to go for it anyway and swear in the Lord's name. See, James isn't saying then that we should never give an oath or swear allegiance in a court of law or in a citizenship or anything like that. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is this is a habit of your lifestyles, and it lacks integrity. And you're not even coming up with the goods. And you're bringing the Lord's name into vain. You're going to fall under condemnation. Your conscience will be seared. And so he exhorts them, listen, don't do that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just live lives of integrity. Live lives of resolve. Be clear in what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, my friends, we may not be suffering, but that lesson still needs to be learned, does it not? We need to be a people of integrity. That when we say yes, we're going to do something, we do it. And when we say no, we're not going to do it. That's what James wants these original readers to be, men and women of integrity. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. He he understands the pressure they are under, but wants to help them realize this is not unto the Lord. So you must not do this. And then in verses 13 to 18... He wants to exhort them as he continues the letter and continues the theme on suffering. He wants to exhort them to keep looking up. 
to ensure then that whatever the circumstances of their lives might be, they're always running to the Lord in prayer. Understanding that you are never going to make it without Him. It's just not going to work. You won't cope in your lives without running to the Lord. And understanding that when you do run to the Lord, you are positioning yourself to experience the graciousness and power and generosity of the Lord. So he's saying, keep looking up. Whatever's going on in your lives, keep looking up. You won't manage it without him, so keep looking up. He is generous, he is powerful, he is gracious. You do not have because you don't ask, so keep looking up. And that is his sign-off in this letter. What he does then is he seeks to nail this, this, this nail of keep looking up. He seeks to hammer it from four different angles, which are my four different points today. His point is he wants us to look up in all of our lives, and so he gives us four points, four nails that he's going to hammer and hammer and hammer to help us see whatever's going on in our lives. You need to keep looking up. And here then is the first. Number one, the upward-looking Christian. Look with me at verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then let him pray. Just imagine the scene. Is anyone among you suffering? He already knows the answer. Yes, there's many. You can just imagine the hands going up around the auditorium in this moment. Is anybody suffering? Oh, yes, that's me. Okay, great. You need to pray. You need to pray. You need to lift your eyes to the hills from where your help comes from. You need to understand that God in his majesty and splendor is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He made all that you see, all the heavenly realms and the land. He made it all. He's the one that says to the tides, this far and no further. He's the one that spins the galaxies. He's the one that sustains the stars so that no one is missing. Is anyone among you suffering? Then let him pray. Lift your eyes to him. And if you're concerned that he doesn't care for you, then lift your eyes to the hill called Calvary. And see him there in his passionate, and particular and specific love for you. He was dying for you. So is anyone among you suffering? Well, let him pray. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, Heaven's great harbor of refuge is prayer. Thousands of weather-beaten vessels have found a haven there. And the moment the storm comes on, it is wise for us to make it with full sail. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just painting a picture with words? He's saying, listen, heaven's great harbor of refuge is prayer. And thousands of people have found refuge there. Thousands of people have found peace there. And so when you are suffering, you need to head towards that harbor with full sail. Get there quickly. Because in God and God alone, you'll find all that you need. See, James knows and understands that when you are suffering, you will suffer with various temptations. Indeed, two temptations in particular. He knows that in the midst of trials, temptations will come, firstly, to grumble against God. That's why in chapter 1, he talks about that. He explains that, listen, I know in your suffering, you are going to be tempted to wag your finger at God and basically say, where are you? What's going on? If you loved me, surely this wouldn't be happening to me. He knows that they are going to be 
tempted to grumble against God. And so he addresses that and alters their bad theology with good theology in the midst of their trial to help them see God is your answer, not your finger point. And he knows then the temptation to grumble against God, but he also knows and understands the temptation in the midst of suffering to grumble against one another. He knows it. Because he knows how it goes. That when you're under the pump and when you're under pressure and when you're suffering, it's going to be tempting to grumble against God. And then here's what he else is going to do. It's going to be tempted to grumble against your brothers and sisters. It's going to be tempted to grumble against the leadership. It's going to be tempted to grumble against your life group leaders. It's going to be tempted to grumble against one another. And he knows it. Well, if only they were caring for me better, I'd probably be fine. I mean, their care is terrible. It's just utterly terrible. Well, is that just feedback or is that grumbling? Because it sounds like grumbling to me. Is that not what he's saying in chapter 5, verse 9, when he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers? He knows that in the midst of suffering, it's going to be tempting to start grumbling in the horizontal. He knows that that's going to come because it's so easy for us as Christians and as people to make idols out of even people. And here's the reality. The church is a wonderful thing. It is such a blessing. But the church makes a lousy God. Only God makes God. And if you start to replace God with the church, you will be let down by the church like you've never known. The church will start to suck in your world because it will never come up with the goods. And James says, listen, don't grumble against people. Don't grumble against God. Run to God. Because he is your answer. What is the remedy to grumbling against God? What is the remedy to grumbling against one another? What do we need in the midst of suffering? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Keep looking up. He will be the answer. Pray for deliverance in the midst of your trial. Pray that in his power and splendor he may bring change to your situation. And if that not be his sovereign will, then pray for sustenance in the midst of the trial. That he will give you grace to keep moving forward in your lives. Perspective. To help you understand that in all things he will use this for his glory and my good. And hope as you realize this is only momentary. Heaven is my home. And peace as you understand as Brendan wonderfully pointed out this morning. That he is with me. I am not alone. That I lift my eyes to the hills My help comes from the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is my keeper each and every day of my lives. So is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Then continues verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Then let him sing praise. Douglas Moo, the commentator, once again, brilliant. He says, a reminder to turn to God is doubtless needed even more in times of cheer than in times of suffering. Isn't that wonderful? You notice that? When we're suffering, we do instinctively more quickly run to the Lord. But when things are going well, we enjoy what the Lord's given us. Why is it that ten lepers get healed, only one comes back and the other nine run off? Well, they're just living in the good of it. They're living in the good of what has happened to them. They haven't got time to come back. They they want to receive the kingdom. They want all that the kingdom brings, but they don't really want the king. 
So James is wonderfully explaining to us, listen, if you're, then, if you're cheerful, then let them sing. Come back to the Lord and lift your eyes to the Lord because it's all by His grace. So James understands that in the midst of suffering, there will be a temptation towards grumbling against God and to against others. But he also understands that there will be a temptation in the midst of prosperity. That temptation will be towards self-sufficiency and self-exaltation. He understands that you're going to start to think this is all about you. This is all just going well because of you because of the decisions you make, because of what's happened in your life, because of the country that you happen to live in, because of the prosperity of how high you've worked. What he's helping us see is that is not true. Everything you have is because of the hand of God. So is anyone among you cheerful? Then let him sing. Now just so that we're clear, he's not saying therefore if you're suffering, you have a week off singing, just enter into the, the, the preached word. Paul and Silas are suffering. They are in jail. They have just been beaten. They have just been whipped. They are in jail. What are they doing? Singing hymns to the Lord. When we are suffering, we also need to sing to the Lord because it reminds us of all the Lord is and who He is and who He was and who He is in the present. But if you are cheerful, then in particular, we need to sing. Alec Motier says, Our whole life, we might say, should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. I love that. You're suffering? Lift up your eyes to the hills. It's going well for you? Lift up your eyes to the hills. It's all him. He's the sum of all you need. He's always the answer. Keep looking up. And then in verses 14 and 15, he then starts to talk to us, number two, about the upward-looking pastors. Look with me, verse 14 and 15. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, it's important to note that this verse is talking about here somebody who is, like, seriously sick. I mean, they are effectively on their deathbed. They're in a lot of trouble. They're not coming to church. They can't actually make their way to the pastors or the elders. They're in a world of hurt. And he's saying, listen, if that's you, if you can't make your way to church, you can't make your way to the pastors, then give them a call so that they can come to you. We have in view here then somebody who is seriously ill, and it's also important to note that these verses are particularly difficult verses to understand and correctly navigate ourselves around, and they can be so easily misunderstood and misapplied, as has been the case with the health and wealth gospel. These are the type of verses that the health and wealth gospel come from because they are misunderstood and therefore misapplied. One scholar says this about these brief text. He says, this brief passage is remarkably full of difficulties. Well, that is just great news for the pastor who's preaching it, isn't it? I mean, I came across these verses this week and I thought, why did I not put Brendan on this? That was my first thought. Like, how did I get up with this one? And then I realized, no, it is me. It is not, it's not helpful when you have really, really bright guys saying this brief passage is remarkably full of difficulties. That's not what I want to hear. But it also makes me grateful 
that we preach the way we do through books. Because if we didn't, I would never be preaching this. It forces pastors, it forces people and congregations to wrestle with Scripture and work out, so what is he saying? And when you wrestle, and when you do the hard work of understanding the context within this whole letter and indeed the entirety of the New Testament and Old Testament, that's when it gives up the jewels. And that's when you can see what it's really talking about and what it's not. And so that's what I want us to do. As we go through these verses, we need to pay careful attention and understand what he is saying and what he's not. See, first and foremost, this passage is not implying that if one is sick, then the reason for that sickness is without doubt one's personal and specific sin. It's not implying that. It's not seeking to. Pay attention in verse 15. He says, and if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. If, not because. They are two very different things. If means something very different to because. And there is, there is a world of meaning packed into the world, the word if. James isn't assuming that all sickness is caused by personal and specific sin. He's not assuming that. He's not assuming that, listen, they're probably on their deathbed. They are in sickness because they have sinned. He is not assuming that in any shape or form. In Scripture, we are taught that sickness is indeed part of the fall. And so it has come into the world ultimately through sin. But now it has come into the world and enter into the sin. Guess what? You all get it. Whether you be the most righteous person or the worst of sinners doesn't make any difference. You're going to get sick. It's part of living in the world. As sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. You are going to get sick. It's not a scoreboard. If you encounter somebody that, man, they never get sick, man, they must be so godly. No, no, it's just their immune system, okay? It's just part of the way they're wired, part of the reality of life. James is not assuming that all sickness is caused by personal and specific sin. However, James is not excluding, deliberately not excluding, the possibility that there may be a connection between one's sickness and one's sin. Because the New Testament does recognize that some sickness is a direct result of some sin. Do you realize that? And so as Paul talks to the Corinthian church, for example, some of them are sick and have indeed died. And he explains, you are sick and some of you have died because you have abused the Lord's Supper. He's making a link between their sin and the reality of what they're facing. And so, Paul, so James doesn't exclude that reality. The reality is, you know, in, in, in the New Testament times, okay, because you're probably working out, how were they ever sick from that? Well, they weren't drinking out of small little cups and drinking small little bits of bread. They're having meals together. So what is most likely happening is the Corinthian church, they're becoming gluttonous and greedy and they're getting drunk all the time. They're probably dying of liver disease. This is the reality. It's nothing super spiritual or overly spooky. He's just saying, listen, if you will abuse what God has given us, then you're going to get sick. Some of you even died as a result of that. James is not assuming that their sickness is a result of personal specific sin, but he is not ruling it out. Likewise, James is not applying some type of healing guarantee in verse 15. 
because it would appear at first reading that that seems to be a guarantee. So if I call the elders and they come over and they anoint my head with oil and they pray a prayer of faith, I'm getting better. It would assume or seem to be implying that, but I want to encourage you, that is not what he's implying at all. That is not his point. And so what then about this anointing with oil in the name of the Lord? So you call the elders and they come over and they anoint you with oil. Is that some type of magical potion? Does it do something? Is that why I've not been healed? Because my elders came over and they prayed for me, but they didn't do oil. Is this like some type of formula that if they just do it right, then I'll be healed? Because I've never been anointed with oil, so maybe that's what I need. No. Afraid not. It's not a formula. It's not meant to be like that. Being anointed with oil in the New Testament, even further back than that, if you go back to the Old Testament, anointing with oil in the Old Testament in Jewish tradition, it always symbolized the consecration of people or things for God's use and service. See, this is a Jewish culture he's writing to here. So he knows, listen, we consecrate things with oil, either an item or a person, and it marks off that that individual's or that thing is the Lord's. So he's saying, listen, when you go pray for the sick, as pastors, as elders, anoint them with oil. Why? Because it does something special? No! But it'll be a means of grace for them, for them to remember that the Lord has set you apart, that you are his that you are his child, that you belong to him. It was a means of grace for the person, not some magic potion so they'll get healed. That's why we don't tend to do it, because none of us are thinking in the room, if I just get oil, I'll be... You don't... We have no culture of that. So what about this prayer of faith that he's talking about here? And the prayer of faith, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Well, so does that mean that if your elders come over and they anoint you with oil, but they don't pray with enough faith, you won't get well. Is that the point? Is it all about how much faith you have? So do you just need to, when you get sick, travel around the world and find somebody with the most faith? Because if they can just get over the faith sort of ometer, then God will heal you. But until they get over the faith ometer, because, oh, they don't believe enough, they don't believe enough. Let's try another one. Do you believe? Yes, you believe. Okay, let's try it. Or did you get healed? Okay, let's find another one. Is that what he's talking about? That you just need to find people that are full of faith? You see how the health and wealth gospel has influenced our thinking in this? You just need to have faith. Name it. Claim it. You, in the health and wealth gospel, people never pray for you like this. And Lord, would you just bless them? They pray for you like this. And Lord, would you come? It's all loud. Do you think, do you think, do you think raising your voice is causing God to go, I am really going to listen. I am really going to listen to this one. Oh my, can you hear him? He must be full of faith. It's crazy. So what is this prayer of faith? Does it mean that if I can find a pastor who prays with faith, that I will get healed? No. No, it doesn't. See, in Scripture, James would have been well aware that sometimes people get healed and sometimes people do not. It's a reality. It's a reality in the Gospels. It's a reality all the way through Scripture. And so we see people full of faith in the Bible getting healed. And so in Mark chapter 5, for example, we see a woman with the issue of blood. She's desperate to get healed. And she has a faith that says, if only I can get to Jesus, if only I can touch the hem of the garment, then I know I'm going to be healed. 
So she runs to him and she falls to him and she touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. It's beautiful. It's a picture of faith and her faith has indeed played a part in her healing. People full of faith in the Bible do get healed. But guess what? There's a load of people in the Bible full of faith don't. Who amongst us thinks Paul was not a man of faith? Paul didn't get healed. He asked God three times to heal him. He talks about a thorn in the flesh, and three times he says, I cried out to the Lord, would he heal me? And three times the Lord said, no. No, my grace will be sufficient for you. In Titus 3, verse 20, we read that Paul has left one of his good friends, Trophimus, sick in Miletus. Well, why didn't he just pray for him? Why didn't he pray for him with the prayer of faith? Then he could have joined him. Do you honestly think Paul didn't pray for him? This is his friend. Of course he was praying for him, trusting that God can do all things. But he's letting us know, listen, yeah, we prayed for him, but I had to leave him there because he's still sick. And so quite clearly in the Bible, prayer in terms of a prayer of faith, is not some type of formula or guarantee for healing. It's not something that we do that we have to muster up. It has to be loud, has to be clear, has to be claimful for God to do it. It doesn't work like that. It never has. That's our modern culture interpretation of it. Praying a prayer of faith and being anointed with oil is not some sort of formula or guarantee of healing in any shape or form. So what is this prayer of faith? What is it and why would one want it? Well, the prayer of faith, by definition, is a prayer that comes from a sincere trust in God's sovereignty, goodness, and wisdom. That's it. A prayer of faith is a prayer that comes from a sincere trust in God's sovereignty, goodness, and wisdom. Why would you want it? Oh, I'll tell you why you want it. Because when people pray for you like that, trusting in God's sovereignty, goodness, and wisdom, incredible things can and do happen through that prayer. Because in his sovereignty, that's the way he's willed it to be. That's the way he's made it and designed it to be. So if anyone is sick, well, call for your elders. Why? Because they will come and they will pray for you, trusting in God's sovereignty that it's his will, ultimately, that needs to be told. That he is good and he is wise in all things. And they will pray, believing that if it be his will, that you will be healed. And if it not, that you will be sustained by him and his goodness and his wisdom. And any which way, great things can happen when they do that. James then, in illustrative purposes, says, listen, call him. Ask him to pray the prayer of faith. Why? Because it can save the one who is sick. He's using it illustratively, not literally. He's saying, listen, when you get them to pray... In effect, you know what can happen? Well, one thing that can happen is God might heal you. And if he doesn't, maybe he'll heal your soul. He'll give you grace to keep running, peace to keep going. Do you see what he's doing? He's simply saying, listen, if you're suffering, look up. If you're not suffering, look up. If you're sick, call the elders. They'll help you. Look up. Let's get everybody looking up. Everybody looking to the Lord. You know, that text, misunderstood and misapplied, that I think happens in the health and wealth gospel, can be incredibly distressing for people. And I know it because I lived in it. So people get really ill and they're not getting healed, and their premise is 
Or maybe it's some type of generational curse, curse, but by the way, don't exist anymore. Jesus became a curse for us on the cross that dealt with. But they think that maybe it's some type of generational curse. Or, or maybe they just don't have enough faith. If they just had more faith, oh, I need to believe more. That's why I'm not getting healed. Or maybe it's you. You don't have enough faith. I need to find more pastors. I need to find a different church with more faith. It is incredibly distressing for that individual. But appropriately applied and understood, I think what this text does is give hope. Look what the Lord can do. He can give you grace for change. He can give you grace to sustain you. You're suffering, lift your eyes. You're not suffering, lift your eyes. You're sick, oh, lift your eyes. Get people to pray for you. Who knows what the Lord may do? He then, in verse 16, draws attention, then number three, to the upward looking church he says therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working see as he exhorts them to look up james exhorts them then to confess their sins to one another and it's important to note that isn't just some type of throwaway or random line. It's not like he's finishing thinking, oh, what else can I quickly get in here? No, it's all connected. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. He wants them to literally start confessing their sins to one another. And he, he, he wants to do that because he's aware they're in much need of reconciliation. And he also knows, listen, some of your sicknesses, they're caused by your sins. So start confessing your sins. Start confessing your sins to one another. And make no mistake, if you've been paying attention in the letter, there is much to confess. I mean, this church is dysfunctional at best. There are great dissensions in this community. There is favoritism towards the rich. There are quarrels and fights. There is sinful judging and slander. There is grumbling against one another and finding fault with one another. There is envy and selfish ambition and everything evil that comes with that. This is one seriously fractured community. And so he wants them to know, listen, guys, you need to stop it and confess your sins to one another. Because some of your sicknesses, look at you. You are so stressed. You are sick to the stomach. You're not sleeping because you have an issue with you and you refuse to deal with it. You don't need a doctor. You need a savior. So confess your sins to them. Link arms together and pray that God may forgive you and that you may be healed. It's genius and it's beautiful. Confess your sins to one another oh, and, and pray for one another. As you stand side by side in the gospel, don't spend time grumbling at each other. Don't spend time envious of each other. Don't spend time slandering each other. No, come together. Link arms in the glories of Jesus Christ. Stand together in the gospel and then pray together. Why pray together? Oh my! Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Do you not realize that when you stand together in unity as brothers and sisters, God can do great things through you? Sovereign Grace, do you realize that the righteous person he's talking about here is you? Is that not staggering? He's called us saints earlier on as well. I mean, it's ridiculous. But he's saying this is you. Have you taken Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, yes. Then you have been declared righteous. And do you realize the prayer of a righteous person has 
great power as it is working, that God can do incredible things in and through you as you pray to him. That's why he shows us finally in verses 17 and 18, the upward-looking prophet. He's using him as an illustration of the power of God that can come when a righteous person prays. Pay attention, verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. You know, at first glance, you can wonder, why did he pick Elijah? I mean, man, he's clearly experiencing things quite differently from us, from like little old me. I mean, this is a guy who played a unique role in redemptive history. He had many incredible experiences and take place in his life. And then, to, to, to finish it all off, he doesn't even die. He gets taken away by chariots of fire, led by horses of fire, and led into the heavenly realms. And the next time we see him is in the transfiguration, when you remember it well, they all start saying, oh, let's build him a tent. You remember the scene? It's just hilarious. But, but this is Elijah. This is Elijah. He, he, this guy is off the charts. I mean, he prays for three and a half years that it would not rain. And for three and a half years, not even a drop. And then he wakes up one day and thinks, we should have some rain today. So he prays, Lord, did you send the rain? And he sends his servant, hey, listen, just go and stand on the cliff because you'll probably see something coming. And the servant goes, stands on the cliff and, oh my goodness, it's a cloud. And it rains. This guy is incredible. This guy prays and God answers his prayer. It can, you can wonder, why is James using him as an example? I'll tell you why James is using him as an example. Verse 17, the first verses, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's saying, listen, look at Elijah. Look at the way he prayed and look at the way God answered. And you know what? He wasn't the fourth person of the quadrinity. He's just a guy like us. He's just a guy. Just a man, got born sinned, got saved, did exactly like what we're doing. Just a man like us. He got depressed like we do, got happy like we do, got angry like we do, sinned like we do, lied like we do. Everything that we do, he's just like us. But you know what? You know what? He prayed. He was a man of prayer. He believed that God would answer his prayers. And you know what? God did. What James is saying is, listen, We need then to be an upward-looking church. Because look at Elijah. He's a man just like us. But look, when he started to pray, look at what happened. Look at what could happen then through you. As you confess your sins to one another and link arms together and pray for one another, imagine all that the Lord may do. So we need, by the grace of God, to keep looking up. Now, it would appear to me then that John O. Miller's grandmother was right all along. She was right in the way she would sign off letters. Keep looking up. Because it's exactly what James does here. He does exactly the same thing, exhorting us to exactly the same end, to keep 
looking up and to ensure that whatever circumstances our lives may be in, whether it be going through times of plenty or times of want, we look up. Understanding that we're never going to make it without him and understanding that as we pray to him, we are, we are positioning ourselves to experience the graciousness and power and generosity of the Lord. And so, is any of you suffering? Then look up and pray to him. Is anyone cheerful? Look up and sing to him. Is anybody sick? Look up to him. Have you sinned before one another? Stand together, confess your sins to one another, and together look up, because imagine what the Lord may do through you. Keep looking up. You know, just last week we examined the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ together. And as I was thinking about it this week and preparing for this message, I was still staggered by the reality of them. When Jesus cried, it is finished. That temple curtain torn in two from top to bottom. A big, thick curtain with golden clasps literally ripped from top to bottom. Nobody could go into that holy holies but from the great high priest once a year for a very short time. But God was signaling him that that ain't the case anymore. This curtain has been torn in two through Jesus Christ. And now through faith in him, as we cry out to him that he is our Lord and our God, you may walk straight into that holy of holies. No announcement. You don't need to build yourself up to it. Just walk straight in because you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My friends, it is a stunning invitation and reality on our lives then that God says, through the Holy of Holies, come to me. You're suffering? Come to me. You're cheerful? Come to me. You're sick? Come to me. And so folks, I want to encourage you then, would we keep looking up? Would we pray in all things at all times, by all means? Would we keep looking up? And would we watch then and see all that the Lord will do? Because he will. So let's keep looking up. Let's pray. Lord, it is a stunning reality that you invite people like us into your presence. Considering who you are and your majesty and splendor and your sovereignty, that you invite us in our lives to come and be with you. Lord, I pray that we would not squander that invitation for a moment. Would you, be, would you help us to be a people, Lord, that quickly run to you? In our suffering, would we run to you? In our cheerfulness, would we run to you? In our sickness, would we run to you? And Lord, in and through it all, would we trust then in your sovereignty, in your goodness, and in your wisdom that you are working all things for your glory and for our good. Lord, help us to keep looking up. And in you would we find the sum of all we've ever wanted. In Jesus' name.